Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on today's podcast is my friend, Diana Southard. Welcome to the podcast, Diane. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, Richard. Will you just give us a little bit of an introduction to our listeners about who you are and the things that you'd like to share on this podcast? Sure. So I'm coming at this from than a lot of the people you've had on the show. I guess I, my origins are in the genetic genealogy industry. So for anyone who doesn't quite know what that is, basically what I do is to learn more about their family and about themselves. So the industry itself is relatively young um, comparatively, and I've been in it since the beginning. So going on 20 years, actually, since I've really been a part of of this industry. But it's really only gained speed maybe in the last 10 or so as as big companies start to get involved. And it was fascinating for me when we talked the other day that um, tell our listeners how many um, companies are there that actually do um, whatever it's called, where you get your um, DNA history Tell our listeners how many companies they are and then what your role is within that world. Right. So there are actually now five companies who essentially offer this service where you give them either a cheek swab where you're using like a swab to swab the inside of your mouth or what they call a saliva collection, which is just a fancy way of saying they're collecting your spit. And they give you information about your heritage about your ancestors so they really give you two kinds of information you get information that's going to link you to other people in the form of a dna match list so a list of other people who've taken a dna test to share ancestors with you at at some level and then you also get a map with uh, percentages so it'll say that you're 22 percent british and 14 percent italian and things like that so other companies have come and gone, and there are certainly lots of other companies involved in taking your DNA for different purposes. But in my industry, we consider really there's we call them the big five, or I call them the big five. And my role in all of that is basically to help you navigate that test. So we, my company is called Your DNA Guide, and we don't do any testing ourselves. But what we do is we offer education and resources to help you understand your test results, to help you decide what test you might want to take, and really to help you find people, whether that's your biological parents or your two-times great-grandfather. Whoever you're looking for, we want to help you find them using your DNA. And tell our listeners, it's fascinating because I have received a test and that test results came, I believe, online and it had a map. But I didn't I didn't have a lot of follow-up questions, but I would recognize um, people do. And um, your expertise, obviously, with the company you founded, your f- founder and CEO, it provides services for those. Uh, tell our listeners just a little bit about your personal uh, background, where you grew up, wh- um, what faith they're in, your family situation, if you're okay sharing some of that with our listeners. Sure, of course. Well, I grew up in Washington State, and I have one older sister, and I joined the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints when I was 17, 
and it was the summer before my senior year in high school. And I'm, I'm a method of what I like to call the flirt to convert method. I dated a member of the church when I was in high school and he introduced me to the gospel. And I'm so far the only member in my family. And, um, I, I really, I can see all of the benefits that have come into my life because of my membership in the church, but I still have the benefit of, um, of all of my family members still being outside. And and it, it gives me, I feel like that constant perspective that, that I can see all of the things that I have that are really a direct result of my faith and my commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's really cool. Um, and I believe you went to Brigham Young, you had obtained a bachelor's degree in microbiology. So it seems like you've been in this world for a long time, Diane. I have, I have. It's, it's funny because um, what really got me to where I am is my high school English teacher. He told all of us graduating seniors that the best thing we could do when we got to college was find a professor who's researching something we were interested in and get involved. And so that's really what led me down the whole path that I'm on right now with that one piece of advice that I decided to apply. I went to BYU and, and found a professor who was researching the DNA of ancient Egyptian mummies. And that research project turned into what was called the Thornton Molecular Genealogy Foundation, which was a, an effort to create a database of people who had their genealogy, who, who already knew their genealogy, and then people who just uh, gave their blood samples, because back then we were doing blood. And that became the first database where you could have your DNA tested and find out a little bit about yourself. And eventually that foundation was sold to Ancestry DNA and became the foundation of their product. So it, it's really, I, like I said, I've been here since the beginning and kind of seen the whole evolution of this industry. That's a pretty unique perspective. I'm involved in an industry that um, predates my birth year. <laughs> And I'm 59, and I would guess many people are involved in industries that have started before them and um, obviously will exist after them. But what an interesting world you're in, because this in industry is really in its infancy when you talk about it only being 20, 25 years old, and to be there from the ground up when you're still a pretty young person, uh, that's a really wonderful um, life journey and um, interesting perspective to have that perspective um, that's cool. And I would guess Thank this you. is a growth industry that it'll be pretty normal to look at our DNA and help us understand our history. Um, for our listeners, sometimes my guests um, help me on these podcasts and they give me questions in advance that help draw out the stories that they'd like to share. And so Diane's done that because I don't know a lot about DNA, except I've had mine taken and receive the results. And she has some pretty fascinating questions. Um, so I'll go ahead. There's about five questions, listeners, um, that I'll ask Diane, and we'll just go through these questions, and she'll give us answers. The first one it seemed, is question one. It seems like so many people are discovering close family relationships they didn't know they had. How has this affected the family structure? Yeah, it's, it's been my, my privilege and sometimes a, 
kind of a scary responsibility to help people understand the relationships that they see in their DNA test results. And as I've helped talk people through some of these realizations, I've just been struck at how how it, it's changed my view of what family is. And I think for your listeners especially, this is where I see so much overlap in my own experience, overlapping with the experience of, of any marginalized group or any group that feels on the outside. Um, because I feel like the, the situation that my friends and these clients of mine that are going through is I'm explaining to them that their father isn't the man they grew up with. Their biological father is not the man they grew up with. They feel a range of emotions and it's very difficult to come to terms with the relationships that you grew up with and, and how that, how that, how you see that playing out in the future. And so it it has really helped me to see that the term family is so much broader than I ever anticipated. And that family, instead of, instead of defining it more closely by having your DNA tested, I've learned that DNA testing has actually expanded the way we view and see our family as it's not just those people that were in our house when we were growing up but it's, it's expanded to include a lot of other people uh, that, that maybe we hadn't considered before. And I feel for, for LGBTQ members of, of the church, especially who feel like they're outside of this church family, it's really helped me to see that that's not the case at all, that there's so much broader definitions that we need to apply to our family unit and to our church family that we're just not doing. And it, it just helped me so much to see, wow, there's, there's really a lot more to this than, than what I initially thought. That's a really thoughtful um, perspective. And it's, I've been drawn to the same conclusion um, that you have, but we've come from sort of different angles. You've come from, I would say, a scientific DNA microbiology standpoint and understanding that. And I've seen it just as I've met with people and you've done that too. And I've heard family stories and it it does broaden my definition of the human family. I kind of go back to that a lot on social media. When I talk about people that might be outside of my own family or my church family, Diane, I talk about we're all same part of the same human family as a way to minimize the divisiveness a little bit and the us versus them. And and it is part of our beautiful doctrine that is generally, I think, unique to our church is that we believe that we're spiritual brothers and sisters of the same heavenly parents. And so we have a doctrinal foundation in just we're the same human family. And sometimes when I go to that 40,000 foot level, I become more compassionate to people that are different than me. Um, so it's int- that's very interesting to me. Any more thoughts on that? Um, no, I think we can, we'll, we'll expand, I'm sure, okay. as we keep talking. Um, question two, what are DNA testing companies doing to be more inclusive to different kinds of family structures? So this is also something that's again, come to my awareness as I, as I work through these problems with my clients is part of the goal of a genealogist is to not just learn about, but also document these people that they're finding. And 
they have found in many cases that the genealogy software that they're using is not allowing them to do the things that they want to do, not document the relationships that they want to document. And again, as, as more people become aware of more different kinds of relationships that they want to include in their documentation, um, it, it just is requiring our companies uh, to be a little more inclusive. And so over the last couple of years, we've really seen a shift in, in our industry uh, to include all different kinds of relationships in our family trees. And it has been a beautiful thing, again, to see that, that someone who is entering your family situation or is asking to be included in a, in a way that you're, it's not traditional, that's not how we would normally document someone, is, is now being uh, accommodated. So all of the genealogy software, um, even family search recently, allows you to make a couple the same gender where that didn't used to be possible. You used to have to have a man and a woman as a partnership to have children. And we know that that's not how all family units are. And we need to, to be aware of that and, and allow people to document their family the way they are, not try to change them into some kind of mold that we expect to be out there. And I just, I've really enjoyed watching that happen um, because really the genealogy industry is the perfect place for anyone who's feeling like they don't know who they are or they're trying to figure out who they are or they're feeling left out or they're feeling outside or like you said, if they're feeling other, like that's in my mind, the purpose of family history and genealogy is to teach you and show you about the people who created you. And certainly genetically speaking, we all come from someone and learning about those people, about their struggles, about their lives, about their successes tells you, man, there's DNA, like their physical, actual DNA is in me, which means they're a part of me, which means if they overcame that struggle, if they conquered that fear, I can too. And, and I feel like genealogy is all about inclusion. And then when we ask someone, a marginalized group, especially, hey, be a part of genealogy, find out who your people are. And then they go to document it and we're not giving them the tools. Then the whole purpose in my mind just crashes down because we, we aren't allowing them to connect in the way that, that they need to, to make this whole experience possible. The family search um, is an interesting example. I'm just looking at the notes in a book I'm writing that's coming out in September. And i I mentioned that as just um, changes that occur that don't change doctrine, but just allow what you're sharing with us, family structures to exist. And I'm quoting the family, family search public affairs manager who says, we are adding functions that allow family, allow people to document family relationships as they exist. And um, I like that because there's a, an active LDS couple in our neighborhood who have a gay son who is now married to a man. And they uh, were glad to be able to include their son-in-law, this dear member of their family, that their son married as part of their family. And we're grateful that that um, now functions, that a function, I'm tongue twisted a little bit this today, exists. Do you know if family search for this couple would then allow children to be yeah. added? So, yeah. Good. Yeah. So it's, it's wonderful. I love 
again, I, I don't want anyone to ever be in the business of trying to tell, you know, someone else how to, what a family looks like. I just feel like we should be, we should be documenting life as it is and not trying to, to shove it into some special box that fits the way we think things should be or where they have always been or something. Yeah, I agree with that. And I, I, I don't think that costs my family unit anything to be able to just extend what you're talking about, grace, or just the practicality of other families to give them that door to have their families documented in genealogical databases the way they've just chosen to um, construct their family. So I'm very comfortable with what you're doing. Any more on that topic, topic two, before we go to question three? No, I think that's good. Um, question three is how should a trans person, a trans person approach DNA testing, particularly with the exclusive YDNA male-to-male pattern? Right, and I think this is a topic that I want to learn more about and I want to talk to more transgender people to help me understand more about. And I've reached out to some of my friends and, and others in the genealogy community to try to help me understand this, but biology is pretty definite. And, and the choices that we make and the way that we identify and think of ourselves still doesn't change DNA. And, um, and so it's really, a, I think, a difficult thing to, to think about when someone has chosen to represent themselves um, one way, but their DNA is going to tell a different kind of story, you know? And it's like, so the Y DNA, which is what I was originally considering, is that it's passed from male to male, and it's it's only in men. And and so it it's really powerful for your genealogy, actually. So Y DNA can help determine um, connections between surnames that are similar or the same. So if you think of like the surname um, Wilson, right? There's lots and lots of Wilson. So how do you tell if a person, John Wilson, born in 1878, is your John Wilson or if he's not? And YDNA is very good at that. It's very good at telling you the people that are your Wilsons versus the people that might be different Wilsons. Um, it's always obviously also very good at telling you who you're not related to. That's not your John Wilson. Don't document him. Don't put him in your tree. He's not the right guy. And it's just, it's a really powerful tool, but you know, it can only be achieved really um, if you have that Y DNA. And so I think it's, it can be difficult when um, a transgender person is coming into this industry and learning these different types of things and, you know, is this going against how they feel about themselves? They can't genetically identify as a man, no matter how much they feel that way. They don't have a Y chromosome. And, and I think also on the flip side, as genealogists who are trying to document your family, me, for example, if I, I want to learn about this man in my family, I can't take a Y DNA test because I'm female. And so I think what I part of what I want or what I'm hoping to do is kind of, you know, raise awareness that if you have a man in your family who is now identifying as a woman, 
And even if he's the only man that has that Y chromosome and you desperately need it to help answer Jenny Allen's question, it's not appropriate to ask her to take a test because she's a she. And, and I think I, 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 would, I would really like to raise the awareness that that's the way they have chosen to be treated. And no matter what they are biologically or genetically, like you shouldn't ask them to take a Y DNA test. You shouldn't ask her to take a Y DNA test. And so I, I feel like there's just lots of little issues like this um, surrounding, um, you know, asking family members to test at all, but just to try to be aware and to be sensitive of, of these, while they are biological facts, it doesn't make it, you know, carte blanche. You can just ask them, well, you have a Y DNA, so you, you should take the test, you know? And I, I don't think that members of our genealogy community are necessarily aware of all of those things. And I, I think it needs to be said. That's really helpful for me, Diane. I had never thought of some of the things you're sharing with our listeners. And I have a goal, like many Latter-day Saints, to not add to the burden of transgender people um, and part of that is tone, and part of that is education. And you said something really compassionate and appropriate. You said, don't ask her to take a Y DNA test. And I loved your use of the pronoun her, because to me that's showing respect to a transgender woman. That, yes, your, your point is accurate, would have a Y DNA, um, y DNA chromosome, is that the right word? And, but that, but that is trumped by, to me, the principle of respect and compassion and humanization of this woman who has transitioned from male to female and identifies as a she, that we honor that as a primary <clears throat> responsibility of the same human family. And we recognize that that would be very triggering to ask her um, to take a Y DNA test. Um, that's, I, I really like what you just shared. Thank you. Any more thoughts on that? Or are there things we're doing in genealogically, in genealogical, I'm struggling on that word, databases to identify transgender people? And that's the other thing. No. So if you take a test, um, actually, I'm not sure what will happen, but most of our genetic genealogy databases they, you know, you, you upload your DNA to your account and in your account, you choose, you know, a gender. Um, but when you take the test, again, your test also reveals gender. And right now there, there isn't, I mean, I think that the company is, is displaying the gender that, that you've chosen when you submit the test. And, and that's, and that works and nobody can really tell the difference necessarily. But of course there are biological differences in um, again, in the presence of that Y chromosome or not. And it, it does make a difference in a different kind of chromosome inheritance, which is X DNA. So we're getting a little biology lesson. Good. Here, Richard. So Go for it. <laughs> X DNA is like Y DNA's partner. So in biological men, they have one X chromosome and one Y chromosome. The Y they got from their dad and the X they got from their mom. But female, biological females have two X chromosomes, one they got from mom and one they got from dad. 
And so when you look at ex-DNA inheritance, it has very distinct inheritance patterns for men and women. And the way we interpret and use the ex-DNA depends heavily on the gender of the person who is tested. And so when we're looking at genetic data, we can see that the sex or the gender of the person who's tested, they say that they're female. But if they really are biologically male, then that makes the Y DNA or the X DNA interpretation, it gets thrown off because you can assume certain things that you shouldn't be assuming. So there's things like that that, I, that are not being addressed at all, at all in the genetic genealogy industry. It's not, it, and, I, and I don't know, again, I don't know how many transgender people are taking DNA tests. I don't know how big of an issue this is, but it has the potential to just, again, change the way we do the interpretation of the results, which is, you know, important and can sometimes have large impacts on the way that people are, are determining relationships with each other. And, and those are all important things and they're not being talked about and they're not being addressed. And, and we need a way to, to make sure that we're capturing the information that needs to be captured in order for the valid interpretation of a test, I guess. But it's, but like you said, it's offensive. It's, I, I don't want a transgender woman to have to say she's a man on a test. She doesn't want to do that. I don't want to make her do that. And yet, in order to really interpret her results correctly, I need to know that. So it's just, it's complicated. It is complicated. And I love your desire to accurately interpret her results, which is your field and a growing field, and the sensitivity you have to that. Uh, we've never talked about intersex um, children that are born, you know, with both male and female um, genitals. And I know there's a biological chromosome um, foundation there. Are, do you, are you a prepared? Can you talk about that? You know, I haven't looked into that as much, Okay, uh, but you're right. Um, there is. And, and possibly, and I'd actually never thought of this until this moment, um, possibly that's one of the reasons why. So ancestry DNA, for example, doesn't, doesn't relate to you any ex-DNA test information. They leave it out. They, they exclude it from the results. Even though ex-DNA is tested, it's excluded. And perhaps that actually doesn't complicate things in the way that some other testing companies who do report the ex-DNA do. Because in order to have male genitals, you have to have at least a portion of that X-DNA. So that has to be a part of what, or I'm sorry, of the Y-DNA. And so that has to be a part of your genetic makeup. And so uh, that's actually really an interesting question about um, if, you know, if those results, what they would look like in a genetic genealogy DNA test. That's interesting. And maybe you'll come back on the podcast sometime and give us more insights on that. Research. Thanks for asking that question. That's a good one. But I do know some of my physician friends, when we talk about um, transgender people, it's easier for them to sort of understand because they're aware of the biology of intersex. I'm not even sure I'm using the right, I'm using the right term intersex, but the biology and the chromosomes and all that vocabulary is pretty fuzzy but they understand that something's gone on there that's unique in that chromosome make of that intersex mm-hmm. child, that that child presents both genitalia. 
And then in that situation, I think we believe as Latter-day Saints, there's a female spirit or a male spirit in that body that's presenting that way. And often a parent or a doctor or both of them together, or some families are choosing not to do any surgery at an infant age. You know, we could sort of manufacture a transgender person then if we, you know, if there's actually a female spirit in that newborn and we feel um, that that child should be male and um, and biologically they're not quite fully male, if I'm using the right vocabulary, and I hope I'm not offending anybody, but it helped, that that helped um, me sort of understand, well, if we, if Heavenly Father would allow that to happen, you know, maybe I should just extend more grace to transgender people um, and understand there's something going on there where they feel this tremendous dysphoria, dysphoria, dysphoria <laughs> gender dysphoria between their biological sex and how they identify and, and to listen to their stories before I just dismiss it as they're confused or this is the last days or... Um, and you're obviously not doing that. You're honoring their lived experiences, and uh, I think that's wonderful. So that's just an area that will continue to learn, and I, I like that you're um, in this industry where there's not really good answers in, for a transgender person, but there probably will be, and it may be people like you and others that will help develop um, the infrastructure, the software, and the programs that capture that so we can appropriately document the human family. Uh, question number four is many LGBT, LGBT couples use adoption or sperm donation in order to start their families. How does this technology affect that process? This has been a really interesting development in the genetic genealogy industry. And I, I feel like it captures this idea that I think so many industries experience where you begin down a certain path thinking that you know what the outcome will be or planning on an outcome, right? That's why you went down the path because you wanted a certain outcome. And then all of these other outcomes start coming because of your innovation or because of your ideas. And I think this is something that no one really anticipated was going to happen is happening. And that's where all of these children were conceived using sperm donation especially early on or even, you know, all through the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, those kids are now growing up and taking a DNA test to find out who their parents are um, or who at least who their dad is usually. And now we have these men who were just trying to make a little money in college and they had 30 kids or 50 kids that Wow. They didn't know about. And all of these kids are finding each other and finding this dad. And it, it's just creating this, again, a crazy family structure, right? How do you document that? I have 30 half siblings. You know, it's, it's really interesting how this is changing. And I started thinking about how this also now affects the ability of a same gender couple to have a baby, how, before all of this DNA testing, it was pretty much guaranteed to a sperm donor that he would be anonymous. And same with adoption. You could have closed adoptions, and it was guaranteed that the child would never be able to find out that you, you know, had given them up or whatever. And now there's no guarantee at all. Like, you'll find out. The kids will find out. There's, there's every expectation that any sperm donation can be traced back to you. 
And so I think it just complicates matters for same gender couples who want to have children and want to raise a family because now there will be that other family involved at some point. Um, you know, if not up front right away, then eventually, because the child that they raise will have the opportunity to find out who their biological parent or parents were. And that changes things. It changes, I don't know, I, I feel like it would make me more hesitant to move ahead with a family just when you strip out that possibility of, um, of being totally unaware of who the actual biological parents were. So, but, but maybe not, maybe I'm wrong. And maybe this just takes away the secrecy of it and allows people to be more open and, um, and, and maybe it will just change the way it's done instead of that it's being done at all. Do you think it, and I'm not a scientist, I'm a business guy. Um, do you think it'll be possible for like two men to biologically father a child? Obviously it would need to be um, in another, in a woman's womb, but for that child to be biologically 100% two men or the same for a woman, um, for that child to be biologically 100% both of the parents being the two women. Absolutely. It's possible. You, I didn't, mean, hesi you didn't hesitate yeah. on that, Diane. No, <laughs> no. I mean, because all a person is, is a set of 23 chromosomes from one person and a set of 23 chromosomes from another person. So in the case of two women, I think it would be especially easy because you don't have to worry about the Y chromosome because you can't have a person with two Y chromosomes that that creates problems. So, but for two women to biologically have a child, it seems like, and again, I don't know that anybody's ever tested this. And this is a very interesting question that I've thought about also, like, could it be possible? It seems like, yes, it can be possible um, because it's just chromosome one from parent A and chromosome one from parent B. And, and I don't know that we know enough about DNA and all of its crazy intricacies to know if this would work or not. Are there things about a man's chromosome one that are significantly different than a woman's chromosome one? And maybe people know the answers to these questions. I just haven't found them yet, but I, I don't think so. I don't think you can look at someone's chromosome one and tell if they're male or female. And so it seems like it would be at least theoretically possible. And maybe, again, like I said, maybe somebody's already done this and figured this out and they know that it's not possible, but maybe it is. Do you know if, um, if this were possible, could it, would it produce children of either sexes? Well, so two women wouldn't be able to have a boy because they don't have an, a Y chromosome to give. So two women would only be able to have a girl. But theoretically, two men would be able to be a, have a boy or a girl. Interesting. Um, yeah, I just talk about an industry where you can't go to bed at night not and, and not think about all the complexities. I mean, if you're mapping the human family with all these increased complexities, that's a pretty crazy industry, especially with the, your heart and compassion to want to map it accurately and reflect everybody's individual families. Um, I've, you know, 
as I've, my journey to sort of support people in same-sex marriages, it's outside the doctrine of our church. And I don't invite anybody down that path, but if somebody goes down that path, I've felt impressed to just support them and want those marriages to succeed. Um, but another complexity potential potentially is they're bringing children into those marriages. And myself 10 or 20 years ago would have thought very poorly of that. And I've thought, you know, it would be a negative impact on a child to be raised by two moms or two dads. And I've moderated on that quite a bit. I don't, it's very hard for me to judge the, um, another family and what is going on with their children. Um, I've recognized that there's some straight families that are doing a very poor job of raising children. <laughs> and my wife and I aren't always perfect in that regard. We've kept our family together and I think we've done a good job. But I recognize there's so many children that are being raised um, in, in very, very poor situations, um, even with no parents. Um, I have a son involved in um, getting children rescued out of sex trafficking. And I'm, I've just recognized the great evil in the world going on. And then I look at these couples in committed long-term relationships, same-sex couples, that are then bringing children into those families. And... I just don't, and I'm at peace that that they're doing the best they can to raise these children and that, and that these children are going to be okay if they have two loving parents that are committed to each other and committed to their children. Yes, it's a family structure that's outside of my family structure and outside of the church family structure, but I've just grown to be at peace that that's okay. And those children to be okay, especially if they're loved by two parents. And I've recognized... And I think over time, perhaps the research will help us understand that indeed, you know, having two parents that love each other and love you results in pretty healthy children and pretty healthy um, futures. And I would guess the children's sexual orientation is going to be independent from their parents' sexual orientation. There's a lot of straight LDS couples that are having gay children. And so I think there's probably a lot of LGBT couples that are going to have straight children. In fact, most of their children are going to be straight. Um, and that is not, their sexual orientation is not going to be influenced by the sexual orientation of parents. So I've just given a five-minute speech. <laughs> um, any thoughts on any of that? Oh, I couldn't agree with you, Richard. I, I feel like some of the very best people I know are gay men in this industry, in the genetic genealogy industry. And I love them with my whole heart and I want them to be fathers. They, they need to be, I feel like they, they have so much love and so much goodness. Um, you know, I, I just, you can, I'm getting a little emotional, but I, I don't, I don't have all the answers. You know, I feel like, like Nephi. I don't know all things, but I know that God loves his children. And I think he loves little children more than big children, even not that he, he would ever say that, but <laughs> yes. And I think our little children need safe, loving environments to grow up in. And I, I feel like 
like you're seeing, there are so few of those families available now for lots of reasons. There's just so much disruption in the family. And I feel like if two people are loving and committed to each other, they are the perfect place to put a child because that core relationship of, of two people who are committed to each other will do more to bolster the confidence and the foundation of that child than anything else. And if they happen to be two men or they happen to be two women, I feel like that's okay. And yes, I, I understand that's not what we teach as members of the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And, but I also understand that it is exactly what we teach. <laughs> we teach loving, committed relationships and, and for me, I, I'm not as picky about how exactly that looks. I love your reference of Nephi. Um, nevertheless, I, I think that's a wonderful scripture. And, um, and I, the older I get, the more I don't know about a lot of things. Um, there was a story in Utah you may be aware of last Thanksgiving, and I'm just Googling it quickly here so I get some of the facts right. <laughs> Um, but a substitute teacher in a classroom in Utah asked the family a good question, What asked the students what they're grateful for um, around Thanksgiving. And one of the 11-year-old boy raised his hand and says, I'm grateful for my two dads that are adopting me. And um, the story kind of blew up because the teacher was hard on the boy for being glad that he was being adopted by two dads, obviously two gay men. And um, some of the students came to the defense of this young boy, but this young boy then went on national TV with his two dads. And I just, it touched my heart because this little 11 year old just wants to be loved and wants to have a family. And these two men in a committed relationship wanted to adopt this boy. And he was so glad at Thanksgiving that he told his whole class how excited he was. And some, and the students in the class, according to reports, seemed to have his back and share in his happiness. And so I learned a little bit in that story, Diane and listeners, that just um, there's a lot of family structures out there, but um, I think there are so many children growing up without two without parents or parent. They're single families, parents that are raising children and doing a great job. And I think we want all of those families to do as best that they can. Um, and there's certainly examples in society where very destructive family situations or when you call them family situations or experience and we want to get kids out of those situations. So yeah, I, as I meet with LGBTQ people, young people, they want to be, they want to have families and some will go into a mixed orientation marriage and make it work that way. But others um, feel like a same sex marriage is part of their future and they would then like to have children. And I just, I, I want to honor them and their wishes and wish them the best. And I know that if I support them um, and help them to kind of go slow and figure that out and keep Heavenly Father in their lives, they're going to make good decisions. Um, so anyway, that's a complicated space that we're both in. Um, but I would guess over time, we'll understand just um, that different family structures can result in very healthy children. Any more thoughts on that one? I just like what you just said about going slow and keeping Heavenly Father involved in our lives. And I feel like all of us need that advice. 
and I was um, reading, or I guess I listened to a podcast where, and I'm going to forget his name. I'm so bad with names. He was the um, former um, BYU Cougar. Um, yeah, Char- Charlie Bird. A, Charlie Bird, yeah. Um, his thoughts were amazing on this podcast that I listened to, and just how his key thought that really helped him through was that Heavenly Father doesn't make any mistakes. And that means that you are the way you are on purpose. And, and I, I ascribe to that 100%, not just for people who are gay, but for me, like that is such a comforting thought to me that I'm made the way I am. And I don't want to judge other people on choices that they're making, just like I don't want to be judged on the choices that I'm making. But if I can approach all my questions to Heavenly Father from this place of, okay, I have faith. I know that my Heavenly Father loves me. Now what? And if you're always coming back to that place, then I feel like you will be led in the right direction. And it might look different for you than it does for me. But I'm confident that as I do that in my life, I know I'm ending up in the right place. And I just, that's such a strong and powerful message that I feel like we, we all need to hear. I love that. Um, we have, um, when you talked about closed adoptions, my parents had four boys. I'm one of them. And, and then a girl, and then they wanted another girl for my, you know, just to complete our family. So they did adopt my youngest sister. And it was a closed adoption, I think, through LDS Family Services or LDS Social Services in the 19, this would be in the late 1960s. And about five years ago, my sister, um, through this DNA world, was able to track down um, her half-sister. And you would be the kind of person that's an expert in how to navigate this. Um, I'm sure you've helped people walk this road and wonder if they should connect with this whole family tree that they've discovered. But she did chose to connect. And and I'm sure you've heard wonderful stories and painful stories, but this was a wonderful story. Her biological mother um, gave her up for adoption and then married and then had a family. She didn't marry um, my sister's father, um, but the biological mother told the whole family that they had a, she had a daughter she gave up for adoption, and they celebrated that daughter's birthday even though they didn't know who that daughter was anymore, and they made her part of the family. So then when my sister connected with this family, they all knew she existed. They all knew she was was her older half-sister, and it was this beautiful reunion that took place. Her mother had passed away by the time she found the family, but her stepfather was alive. And um, it's been a healing thing for both families to um, be able to bring through the beauty of DNA to bring these two families together, it's healing for my own parents um, to see uh, more of the story of their role of adopting this girl and raising her and, and now seeing her connect with her biological family. So I'm sure you hear a range of stories, but that's been a story that's been particularly tenderhearted in our own family and is only possible through DNA. Beautiful. I love that. Thank you for sharing. The next question here is, let's discuss the complexities of biological parentage versus the good people that raised you. (laughs) I guess that's a good (laughs) lead in. (laughs) (laughs) 
that is a good lead in. Um, so this is another, another area where I see, um, I think one of the biggest emotions that someone feels when they find out that their parents that they grew up with aren't their biological parents is betrayal. They feel like they've been lied to. And I love that you said in, in your sister's story, how her mother never tried to cover her past mistake. If she even considered it a mistake, right. which she doesn't have to for sure. But this, you know, event in her life, she didn't try to cover it up, but she celebrated it. And I think that is so brave of her, especially at that time. Um, I love that. I love her already. I wish that she had still been alive. Um, but it, it's so many people just for self-protection, self-preservation, out of fear, out of judgment, whatever, they aren't able to do that. They aren't able to, to be open about their past and what has happened. And, and so when their children or grandchildren find out this thing, they feel betrayed. They feel that their life has been a lie. And one of my biggest soapboxes is to stand up and say, when you find out something like this, you're thinking of it is that you've had to cut off this part of your arm that you thought was there the whole time that really wasn't. But that's not how it is. You didn't cut off one arm. You added another there's so there's no subtracting in this equation. It's all addition. And I feel like that's the one thing people are missing. They feel like somehow DNA has become this ultimate indicator of relationship. If you share DNA, you're related. If you don't, you're not. And that's just not true. And I feel like, I don't know how DNA like made the, I wish I knew the marketing team behind DNA because they have become so successful convincing the whole world that DNA is the ultimate indicator of relationship. And I just, it's not true. I don't know how it achieved that status, but it's not true. And so one of my roles or one of my jobs I see is to help people see that, you know, these good people that raised you, they are your family, just every bit, maybe even more than this person who biologically created you. And it's, it's an always addition, never subtraction. I wrote that down word for word, Diane. That's really powerful. Um, it's not a subtraction. It's only an addition. And it may take a little bit of mental just sort of accepting the new reality, but the new reality is just what you said there. That's pretty powerful words. It's not a subtraction. You haven't lost an arm. This is only an addition. I love that. And I love your thoughts about DNA and the marketing team behind DNA. Yeah. Um, I thought of the temple when you said that and how we create family units that aren't based on DNA in the temple ceiling and in the temple um, when we start a new family. And um, yeah, that then creates families. But I think it, in a way that helps me broaden my perspective on we're all the same human family and perhaps these rigid definitions that are based on DNA, we can evolve and see um, definitions beyond that that help bring us together and bring beauty and goodness into our lives and into the lives of others. Absolutely. Thank you for bringing up the temple feeling also because I, I think of that often. I remember, so my husband's stepmother so, I mean, we're definitely not related, not that I would have been biologically related to his mother, but I mean, no, 
absolutely no biological relation to his stepmother. And she gave me names for the temple for the first time years ago. And I remember taking them to the temple and feeling that feeling to them. And I was like, wait a second, how come I'm feeling like so connected to these people who I'm not connected to, but I am connected to them because, you know, even though my husband isn't even sealed to her, you know, he's sealed to his mom and his dad. And I, I just, I really had this long period of time where I was thinking about the power of sealing and how somehow, because she is now our family, um, I am connected to her family and I don't understand all of it. And I don't, I don't need to understand all of it, but I know what I felt in the temple about her family name. And I'm grateful for that connection that I felt to them. And I, it's just, it was, it was really a unique and incredible experience. And again, thinking about the structure, the things that we think we know to be true, there's so much more than what we already understand. And we just need to have room for that. I do like room for that room for growth, room for further understanding um, sometimes I've been kind of on Twitter about this this week or the last couple of weeks that these are the last days. And, but sometimes when we're approaching something new that we don't understand, I've done in this in the past where I say, well, that's a sign of the last days. If it's just something I'm uncomfortable about, but I've learned not to say that until I, I sort of lean into that area and decide is, you know, what's really going on here? A sign of the last days for sure is parents that sell their children to sex trafficking. I'm pretty comfortable that that is pure evil. And I've learned enough about that to be very at peace that that is pure evil and something that Satan's deeply behind and a sign of the last days. But some of the things that sometimes are occurring that you're talking about and family structures to me are just I don't look at them as necessary signs of the last days. I just look at them as people doing the very best they can in the human family to have their own families and do the very best they can and raise their children and and create families and connections the very best the way they know how. And so I just have developed more nuance there. And it, and my, I sort of say sometimes keeping my temple covenants, part of that is not assessing if other people are sort of doing the right things in their life or keeping their covenants. I just, I, it's like you, I create space for other families to do the very best they can. And I think they do better when they feel my support and they don't kind of feel me looking over their shoulder, just waiting for their family to fail or wanting their family to fail. I want all these families to succeed that are based on trust and honesty especially relationship with Heavenly Father and deep commitment to other family members and trying to bring out the best in other family members. So it's kind of a complicated space, just like you're in, and that's kind of the way I navigate some of this too. Do you yeah, have... Yeah, and it's just complicated. <laughs> um, but there's another... I may do a couple podcasts now with some of these people that I know that have connected. I had a really close friend who knew he was adopted, and but who they told him he was adopted from was not really who he's adopted from. And he's been on this big journey through DNA to find all these people um, that are part of his family that he didn't know were part of his family. And it's been very healing to him and to his family. And so there's just thousands and thousands of these stories. And I'm recognizing we're solving really awful crimes 
talk about signs of the last days, some of these terrible serial criminals that have been, yep. um, because of DNA, um, have been found kind of sometimes late in their life, kind of gone um, into the woodwork and assumed new names and in some ways seem responsible, but are part of these horrific serial um, crimes that come. And so I'm grateful. I don't think a lot of those cases would be solved without DNA. And um, so I'm grateful for the work that's being done. Any final things you'd like to share with our listeners, Diane? Um, I guess it's just that if there, there's so much connection to be found in DNA testing, I've seen it so often. Um, I feel like it has tremendous power to heal and to bring families together. And I, I love how it's being used. I love, like you're saying, there's so many uses of it, but I love how it is bringing families together. And I just, I really encourage anybody who's, who's searching for themselves or searching for connection. I think DNA testing and seeing with your own eyes, these physical connections that you have to those around you can, can be very healing. I love that. I love the principle of connection. Um, and I would think that Heavenly Father knew in our world that's getting more complicated and maybe less connection that I'd have to think by design, he knew that this science would evolve to the point that it has evolved to so that we're able to do DNA testing. testing. And experts like you are coming along to help us read those tests and, and connect with family members because it does bring healing. We're wired for connection. We're wired, I think it's part of our doctrine, the hearts of the fathers turn to their children, children to their fathers. And this is um, temple work and DNA testing connects us with um, I think it connects us with people on the other side of the veil, I've, and it connects us with other our fellow human family here that may be in different races or different political parties or just differences. We see each other um, as the same human family, and I think it has the potential to decrease the divisiveness that exists in our culture. Um, tell our listeners, again, the name of your company and how they could contact you. I think you've got an email address that you're welcome to have people reach out to you via. Right. So our website is yourdnaguide.com. And we have a blog there that you can read with lots of topics. We've got a newsletter that comes out every month that you can subscribe to with just some tidbits and information and, and uh, kind of keep up to date on the industry and what's going on. And then if you want to contact me directly, you can reach me at guide, G-U-I-D-E, at yourdnaguide.com. So thank you, Diane Southard, for being on our podcast and the great work that you're doing. Maybe, you know, if you came back on the podcast in five years and just told us 10 crazy and 10 new developments that have happened in five years, you would have a list of 10. Um, oh, definitely. Definitely. What, a, what an exciting field that I would still say it's infancy, even though you've been there for 20 years and, that's going to continue to grow and bless a lot of lives and bring us together as the same human family. So, and thank you, our listeners, for joining Diane and I. This is Richard Osler signing off on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. Mm-hmm.